And we're on public diplomat Guy Chet. How you doing? Doing well. Can't complain in public, right? Well, you should. I'm going to complain in public. So ask me where I just came back from. Where'd you just come back from? Back from? I just came back from the gas station. You know how much I paid? Uh, I would say, knowing your car, fifty or sixty dollars. Seventy bucks. I paid four dollars and I think forty-eight cents for gas. When I moved to Texas, what is it? Three, four <laughs> years ago, it was a dollar twenty. No. What happened? Dollar twenty. So I mean, to, to be honest, what really happened? Uh, you know, uh, stimulus, COVID, pre, uh, after COVID, uh, demand, obviously supply and demand, government regulation. The Federal Reserve. We can talk about all this stuff, but you know, obviously, Russia, Ukraine, the Ukraine. By the way, it's Ukraine. It's not the Ukraine. Did you know that? I uh, so w when I grew up, um, we used to play Risk. Okay. And it was always referred to as the Ukraine. Uh huh. And so, okay, so you, you know why it changed, right? Talk talk about it. So uh, so regions are called the like the Euro Mountains, or the steppes of Russia, or the Great Plains. But countries are called, you know, Ukraine, Israel, Lebanon, etc. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the the in the Ukraine, or the Congo, is kind of an imperial legacy Here you of, go. So it's supposed of to seeing it as a, as a region. We don't say the Ukraine anymore, All right? There are yeah. two countries you can actually call by the, the Gambia and the Bahamas. Those are the two exceptions. Other than that, nothing else. But that's not what we're talking about today. So let's talk about Russia and Ukraine. Um, February 24th, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. And um, let's talk about, did we get it right? I mean, really, when you think about it, this was the most telegraphed invasion or the least surprising invasion in the history of the world. You're a historian, I'm not, but I'm gonna make that statement. When the Russians were massing their troops on the border, the Biden administration used the, the white, you know, the mainstream media to clearly telegraph intelligence information, right? They said Vladimir Putin is gonna attack sometime in February. He's gonna attack sometime in mid-February. He's gonna attack next Wednesday. Yeah. And many people thought that this was just a way to put pressure on the Russians not to invade and when you really think about it, the stock market didn't believe it. And the stock market is the best predictor of the future, right? I mean, stock market, it acted like it's not going to happen. So let's talk about it. Did we get well, this right? Look, I, I, I mean, the stock market is not a predictor of the future. It's a reflection of what people know or think they know, or, or, what people think. So, yeah. But, yeah. Absolutely. So uh, while uh, we're telegraphing that the Russians are going to invade, nobody really believed. So did we get this whole thing right? Let's talk about it from the beginning. So first of all, I'm not sure that they didn't believe. Uh, they might not have thought it was going to be that disruptive an event. Like e even if you thought it was, look, I can tell you that, hey, Gambia is going to invade whichever country is on the borders of Gambia. Um, and, the stock, and, and let's say it, it, it happens. Stock market is not going to be rocked because most companies in it don't think that it's a rocking event. So maybe it's not that the stock market didn't believe it would happen, but either they believed our intelligence that it's going to be a 
an instantaneous war or victory, and 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 the, therefore so, the economy and the commerce will will remain as is. Or they didn't believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, when we say when we talk about did we get it right or did they get it right? Who's they? But the government, the media, right? Uh, we're we're talking about a is there going to be an invasion, and b what is this invasion going to look like? Think about yeah. the early narratives about this potential invasion, the Russian invasion. Yeah. So look, the the uh, by they I don't count the media. Because the media just parrots what the intelligence services tell them, uh, or, or the army. Um, so, look, when, when we look at how the government, how the intelligence services performed in the past, they have, I'm, I'm sure they have a list of things they got right, but a lot of iconic intel uh, statements were embarrassingly wrong from... Um, just recently about, um, what's his name, Milley, the General Milley's assurance to the U.S. government that the Afghan army will fall and saying that we didn't expect uh, that the army would collapse and it took us all by surprise. And then failing to, to, to predict the fall of the Soviet Union, failing to predict the um, Russian invasion of, the failure to predict the uh, Iranian revolution, the failure to predict, uh, or, or not, not, it's not predictions, it's reading. Um, uh, you know, the, the Arab Spring, weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the failures are, are, are numerous. All these kind of slam dunks. Uh, the, the, the nuclear breakout of Afghanistan, uh, of uh, Pakistan. Whoa. How can you miss it? In any case, so, so they North have. North Korea. Jurassic North Korea, too? Right. Yeah. Right. So, they've had a lot of uh, failures in predicting, but in this case, they predicted well. But, as you said, I think what you're angling for is that they predicted, and that's what we heard in the media, that it's going to be a romp. It'll be over in, um, you know, very quickly. Yeah, which it, it didn't turn out to be, right? I mean, the Ukraini Ukrainians, the Ukrainians, can we say no, that? No, that Ukrainian, no, Ukrainian is fine, yeah. Linguistics here. The Ukrainian people are holding strong, strong resistance. And let's talk about the, the news media today, right? Are they getting the story right today? We, we keep on hearing different narratives about what's happening on the ground. And of course, you know, modern coverage of wars is very different than 50 years ago, 40, even 20 years ago. I mean, we have social media now, so a, a common soldier, Russian or Ukrainian, with their, with their cell phones on TikTok, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter, whatever the kids are using these days, can deliver content from the field. So are, is the media getting the story right right now but what is actually happening on the ground right now and how it's going to turn out so look i again i i put the media to the side the media is a mouthpiece again i'm not, I'm not saying it's derogatorily but uh, i'm not trying to be derogatory uh but where's the media going to get their intel you know they're getting it from the the, the russian government or government uh, kind of media from the Ukrainian government and government media, and from the American government and government media. So, uh, n and neither one of those entities, you know, the Russians, the Ukrainians, or the Americans, are, you know, have a track record or, or can, can be relied upon to provide objective intel. So we're at the mercy of of these intel sources. And look, I, I agree. Like we're getting this narrative of the Ukrainian uh, resistance. And <laughs> you've, you've seen these images. Yeah, I, I can't. 
images of, of tractors pulling Russian tanks and tanks burning and and, and, and that Soviet Soviet that, that Russian uh, ship uh, sunk. Those are all the images I see, I, and, and I follow the news pretty closely. And yet, when you look at the map, constantly the the red part, the the part where the that the Russians are occupying, is growing. So all the images and the stories are about effective resistance and the Russians getting their butts kicked. And yet the map shows the opposite. So. Uh, Wait, wait and see. I uh, we're, we're waiting, we're waiting. It's, 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 it's a real challenge, you know. I mean, when you really think about uh, foreign news, or foreign uh, media coverage of international events, we are so dependent on um, elite sources because we have no access as journalists, right? I mean, I mean, a journal, I mean, there are a lot of journalists who actually flew there. I don't want to agree, I, I will disagree with you that we're entirely dependent on government uh, sources. There are a lot of very brave journalists on the ground collecting information, collecting data, interviewing people, getting stories from the inside. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, individual journalists does not have the same um, megaphone as uh, NATO briefings, uh, you know, military briefings, etc. And actually, I, let, I, let, me, let me ask you, um, you're more familiar with where news is generated. Is most of the news that we're getting Report from reports from the field, or is most of the news generated about the war in Ukraine generated in Washington D.C., New York, and other European capitals? Like, is, is it created by newspapers and, and bureaus in the West, or by journalists on in in Ukraine? It's a fantastic question. Um, I think the answer is both. And what I would argue is that the journalists on the ground are providing data points, right? They're, they're bringing the quotes, they're bringing the data points, they're bringing new insights, new information that nobody else has. What the, the folks above, the editors, the producers, um, the gatekeepers, really do is uh, provide framing. Framing is an academic term, right? That explains how um, events are interpreted, right? So uh, what is the problem? in the field, right? So let's take the the uh, Western narrative, right? What is the problem? Russian aggression, right? What is the cause of the problem? Putin it wants to be the new czar, right? A moral attribution, bad guy. What is the solution? Get out of Ukraine, right? And then take the, the counterintuitive, uh, counter narrative, right? Which is the Russian narrative, which looks completely different, right? Uh, why is there a war in Ukraine? Because um, the, the they, you know, they argue that the fascists are taking over, the Nazis are taking over, and uh, and NATO uh, expansionism and all that. And obviously, the bad guys are the West and uh, President Zelensky. And uh, the solution is for Ukraine to uh, go back to its um, old ways and uh, join the Russian uh, sphere of influence, right? But guy, let, let's talk about that. I mean, we we talk about counter narratives, but there's one narrative that we really don't have exposure to: is why did Putin, I mean, he really climbed on a tree that he can't get up, right? He can't climb down up, right? Nobody's seen an end to this story. Why did Putin I, invade? Look, I, you don't know that. Look, uh, granted, if, if we think that his original objective was to conquer, uh, conquer Ukraine and then take over the country, it doesn't look like he's doing it. But if, if his objective, like it was in Georgia, was to liberate um, and, and kind of tear off border areas 
and weaken the country so that it won't be able to join NATO and then to put the kibosh on Georgia's attempt to join, uh, request to join NATO, if that was his objective here, then again, if you look at the map at least, he's accomplishing it, and there's, it's hard to imagine that the West or Ukraine will be in position to wrest those eastern and southern parts of Ukraine back from Russia. So I, I, I don't know. Look, I, I don't know what... So, so you know, and, and, until we see uh, Putin's diary and saying, I, I invaded because of this. We're going to invite uh, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is invited to our podcast show anytime. Episode, episode five. There we go. <laughs> episode five. Uh, no, but I mean, you can't really get into the mind of Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. But, but there, are, there are counter narratives about what causes uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, the first one is Western weakness, and the second one is Western strength. So I'm going to present the West, Western weakness uh, frame or narrative, and you tell me what you think about it, and then I'm going to ask you to present the, uh, the counter narrative, right? Um, the Western weakness narrative argues that Putin is watching American... Um, behavior around the world, right? The United States after the war in Afghanistan, in an Iraq, basically don't want to get involved. I mean, it starts with Obama, it goes to Trump, and the message everywhere is very simple. America and the West, so the French, the British, the Germans, they don't want to get involved in any major military interventions. I'm not talking about the French in Mali, but you know, we're talking about Syria, where basically, despite President Obama's red lines, the United States didn't get involved when Bashar Assad murdered, slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people, right? And despite the effort by the kind of, by, by the arm, by, by lobbyists uh, in the army and in the, in the major, major media outlets. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean, the United States doesn't get involved in Syria. Vladimir Putin looks at that. He's like, okay, I'm gonna go in there and take over, and he did, right? So the Russians go into Syria, uh, that worked out well. Then uh, the whole story with uh, Crimea, you know, he goes in there, he annexes Crimea, the West doesn't really do anything about it, you know, slight sanctions. And then comes the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which as you previously stated, was an absolute mess, right? The, West, the United States looks weak, the United States runs away, and the message to its international rivals is, America is no longer the world leader, so why the heck not? Why not bring back Russian influence, bring back Chinese influence, bring back Iranian influence, bring back Turkish influence? And we've seen that over and over and over. But when Vladimir Putin attacks Ukraine, we see the um, uh, re-emergence of NATO, we see strong sanctions that nobody ever believed, not only from the United States, but from the European Union, and that is the Western weakness narrative. Can you can you provide the counter narrative, which is the Western strength? Yeah. So the the um, the argument, the problem with this uh, narrative that you just uh, introduced is the timing. Okay? Is that, yes, of course, the Russians uh, invade or, or mess with in in Georgia, in Crimea, and now in the rest of Ukraine. Um, in periods where the West is is weak or preoccupied by other things, and therefore can't can't respond, it's, it's it's a window of opportunity, but but that doesn't explain the desire to to do so. Okay, so 
the, the, the timing is an opportunity. The desire is what needs to be explained. Right, let's talk so, about the desire. And, and so the desire is either, the, the two narratives are either, that look, the Russians always want to expand because they're imperialists and da, 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 and, and on top of that, they're really bad. Their leader is a very bad person. Um, and th this has been the mainstay of America, of Western explanation for Russian or Soviet aggression in the past. And then in the 1950s, I think, or 60s, uh, a different school of thought came about, I'm assuming in academia first and in the State Department, George Kennan, I think, um, that explained Soviet foreign policy based on Russian history and Russian insecurity, because Russia such a huge country without any natural borders, with a history of invasions from all sides, and it explained Russian, uh, R Russia's creation of um, spheres of influence, of buffer zones around it, as a product of Russian sense of vulnerability rather than a sense of Russian aggression. So in this case, again, so it's either that the Russians are naturally expansionist, or that the Russians f have felt, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, a sense of insecurity, okay? And therefore, they're trying to recreate some sort of sense of security. And if you look at the maps of, again, just look, look at the maps in, in the mid-90s of, of NATO versus Russia, and how you had Russia without Eastern Europe as its buffer zone of Soviet republics, and NATO, very far apart. And then in the 90s and early and 2000s, one empire, one, one one military alliance, NATO, is getting closer and closer. Get, getting closer and closer and cl consistently and without uh, any halting, closer and closer all the way to the borders of Russia. And so, um, look, and there's a great deal of resistance to this explanation in the West because, oh, you're like, you're, you're pro-Russia, you're pro-Putin, or you're a mouthpiece for, for Xi Jinping. Uh, but it, Take away the U.S. and the Soviets and good guys and bad guys. Let's imagine that this is ancient Egypt and the Assyrian Empire. And just look at the maps, okay? How do you interpret this kind of move? And how do you think that power that is getting encroached upon would see it? Okay, so we know that we're good and we mean the Russians no harm. But how can the Russians know it? Okay, what, the last 70 years... Uh, would teach them that the U.S. doesn't mean them any harm. <laughs> they, they, they've been at war with us forever, and now they've become weak with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and here we are, approaching and approaching and encircling them from Georgia through Turkey to, 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 uh, to the Baltic Sea. Okay? And now, especially with Ukraine trying to get into, uh, into NATO, maybe all the way to their borders. So the, so the question is, if it's true that that NATO doesn't mean Russia any harm, how come NATO hasn't ever invited Russia to join NATO? Okay, now the argument is, well, it's only for democracies. What, like, what, like Turkey? Well, that's a strong point. It's a good point. And we don't get this narrative in the Western media. And again, it goes back to media indexing, right, which we spoke about. Or do we speak about indexing yet? Or no? no Let's talk about media indexing. The, the, so, the, the furrowed brow tells you that we haven't Okay, there you go, right? <clears throat> so um, how does uh, the media decide on how to explain narratives, how to frame, how to explain international conflicts? And there's a really interesting concept from mass communication. Uh, this is by Professor Lance Bennett, 
It's called media indexing. And what it predicts, it's a really cool concept, I think, is that whenever there is elite consensus about any topic in the world, the news media will mirror the elite consensus. So whatever the, 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 the what would the mirror? Elite consensus, right? So if the elites agree that Iraq have weapons of mass destruction, right? So Democrats and Republicans alike believe that there is uh, there are met weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the news media will adopt that narrative. Why? Bennett explains there are several reasons. One has to do with the dependence of sources on government, right? They don't want to lose access. Number two is they don't want to get it wrong. They trust, you know, they're like, wow, but everybody agrees, all the experts, all the military, all the think tanks, all the politicians agree, they probably know something I don't know, right? So it's kind of a play it safe strategy. And number three, they don't want to get in trouble with uh, not only with the sources, but with the public. So if everybody in the elites are uh, behind the narrative, the chances are that the public, many of the public are behind it. So there is a dynamic where the news media will uh, adapt the wide, widely agreed upon narrative and tell a story just like the elites, right? Mm. So this is why I think the narrative that we both put forward looks very different in the uh, Western media and in the Russian media. I mean, if you watch RT or any of the um, opposition channels to the West, you're going to hear a lot more about the kind of narrative they described, right? About NATO expansionism and um, e European expansionism and so forth. The real question is, when is the break in indexing happen? And the answer is, when the elites start disagreeing. So we saw that yeah. in Iraq, we saw that in Afghanistan. As soon as the elites uh, begin to disagree with one another, the news media steps in and provides a counter narrative. At least that, that's what yeah. indexing will suggest. That's interesting with regard to the Soviet Union, because like, like I told you, the from the Soviet Revolution uh, to the about 1950s or 60s, there was unanimity about what is driving Soviet aggression. Um, and then around that time in the mid-century, at, at least in the state, state Department, there was a different voice. And I think, again, d during that time, is the, um, that, that era marks the highest level of Americans' exposure through the media to uh, kind of communist, uh, co communist narrative, communist propaganda. Okay. Uh, again, during the 50s and 60s. And then, but in the 70s and 80s, there seemed to once again be a consensus left and right by cold warriors like, you know, JFK to, to Richard Nixon and, and whoever came uh, after them uh, about, you know, that no, it's not Soviet insecurity, it's Soviet aggression. And, and, and that was reflected, I, I think that kind of bears out what you're saying, that there was a window of lack of consensus in the elites, left and right, and it filtered to what Americans were exposed to, and then it reunited. Listen, it's going to be interesting yeah. to see how this is going to play out in, uh, in the news media as, as the war continues, right? And it will evolve. I mean, the war will evolve. And, uh, well, I mean, hopefully it will end as soon as possible, hopefully today. But, I mean, it, it's not looking like it, right? It looks like... Not, uh, not today. Playing the long game right now, despite the strongest economic sanctions we've ever seen in the modern era. 
Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's no indication that, so far at least, that the sanctions are having a significant effect on, or, or a debilitating effect on the Russian economy or the Russian war effort. So, But listen, there, there is an argument, and it's a really interesting one, that um, everything that's happening right now in Ukraine is having an impact on a different rival of the United States, and that is China, right? I mean, many people have argued that the strong stance by the Biden administration, by NATO, by the EU, is actually going to work as a deterrent for China with Taiwan and the aggression in the South China Seas. What do you think about that? We don't even know if it's strong, uh, strong pushback. I mean, yes, these are strong sanctions, but we don't know. I mean, like I said, the Russian war effort is continuing fairly successfully, not as successfully as they would have wanted, no doubt. But look, if, if in six months you and I are going to meet here and talk about <clears throat> uh, Ukraine giving up a third of its territory, then the message, the, the lesson that the Chinese will get from this will be very different. Um, look, the, the, it seems to me that um, what you, the, the, the big question about the response of the EU, and, and we don't even know how long these sessions, look, this war has been, what, only three months, four months long? Um, the West might lose interest tomorrow and 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 all this talk about kind of NATO's resilience or the EU or or the UN uh, will, will will go away because look there's this tension in the second half in, in the 20th century between this major force of nationalism and nation states uh, governing their own affairs and the pushback through international through international bodies like. NAFTA and the UN and the League of Nations before and, and NATO and the um, World Trade Organization, etc., etc., of who will govern, how will the world be governed through these global or international forums which necessarily limit the freedom of action of individual nations or the opposite, you know, that individual nations will pursue their individual things. And, um, and so Obviously, NATO is one of the most important of these international governing bodies. It's the strongest military power in the world, or military alliance in the world. And one could but, say that it's the strongest it's been in a long time. I mean, think about NATO just four yeah. years ago when Trump was bashing it, saying, hey, you guys have to contribute to this dying body. NATO's re-emerged. Oh, my yeah. God, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, and, and this is what the West has to figure out and China has to figure out, or learn, what is NATO for? Like we knew what NATO was for during the Cold War. If you ask people up there, what is NATO for? Is it just to keep the peace in the world, or or, or, or just in Europe? Or like, it, it's really unclear. If, if the purpose is to keep Russia in check, then China doesn't have to consider it uh, as, as relevant to them. If it's to keep the peace in the world then it's relevant to China. If it's just to keep the peace in Europe, it's a different question. So it's, the West isn't clear, like of all these governing bodies, the, the one that is the most uh, muscular is NATO. Um, and I think we, look, even you and I, probably don't have a consensus, a clear understanding 
of what NATO is for. And, and until we find out, or the, the Chinese won't find out either. Right, so I'm going to challenge anybody listening right now to, in the comment section, tell us what is NATO for? Do we know? That's a great question. And I think this is where we're going to end our uh, show today, guys. So next time we're going to meet, we're going to talk about how history is written. You're an historian, and I'm fascinated by that question. <laughs> so uh, let's end today's section. And show, uh, thanks very much. And everybody who's watching, thanks so much. And keep on tuned for the Public Diplomat. Next time, see you then.